0: CHAPTER 40 OF LIVES OF THE MOST REMARKABLE CRIMINALS, VOLUME THREE. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY LAUREN RANDALL. LIVES OF THE MOST REMARKABLE CRIMINALS, VOLUME THREE. BY ARTHUR L. HAYWARD. THE HISTORY OF THE LIFE AND SURPRISING ADVENTURES OF JOHN GOW, ALIAS SMITH, A Most Notorious Pirate and Murderer, Part One. The principal use to which a work of this nature can be applied is to engage persons to refuse the first stirrings of their passions, and the slighted emotions of vice in their breasts, since they see before their eyes so many sad examples of the fatal consequences which follow upon rash and wicked enterprises of which the following history exhibits as extraordinary an instance as perhaps is any there to be found in giving an account of this malefactor we are obliged to begin with his embarking on board the vessel which he afterwards seized and went to pirating in it was called the george galley and was of about two hundred tons burden commanded by oliver furinot a frenchman but a subject of the crown of england who entertained this gal as a private seaman only but afterwards, to his great misfortune, preferred him to be the second mate in the voyage of which we are next to speak. Captain Furneaux, being a man of reputation among the merchants of Amsterdam, got a voyage for his ship from thence to Santa Cruz on the coast of Barbary, to load beeswax and to carry it to Genoa, which was his delivering port, and as the Dutch, having war with the Turks of Algiers, were willing to employ him as an English ship, so he was as willing to be manned with english seamen and accordingly among the rest he unhappily took on board this gal with his wretched gang such as macaulay melvin williams and others but not being able to man themselves wholly with english or scots he was obliged to take some swedes and other seamen to make his complement which was twenty-three in all among the latter sort one was named Winter and another Peterson, both of them Swedes by nation, but wicked as Gow and his other fellows were. They sailed from the Texel in the month of August, seventeen twenty four, and arrived at Santa Cruz on the second of September following, where having a supercargo on board who took charge of the loading and four chests of money to purchase it, They soon got the beeswax on board, and on the 3rd of November they appointed to set sail to pursue the voyage that day the ship having lain two months in the road at santa cruz taking in her lading the captain made preparations to put to sea and the usual signals for sailing having been given some of the merchants from on shore who had been concerned in furnishing the cargo came on board in the forenoon to take their leave of the captain and wish him a good voyage as is usual on such occasions whether it was concerted by the whole gang beforehand, we know not, but while the captain was treating and entertaining the merchants under the awning upon the quarter-deck, as is the custom in those hot countries, three of the seamen, viz. Winter and Peterson, two Swedes and Macaulay a Scotchman, came rudely upon the quarter-deck, as if they took the opportunity because the merchants were present, believing the captain would not use any violence with them in the presence of the merchants. They made a long complaint of all their ill usage, and particularly of their provisions and allowance, as they said being not sufficient nor such as was ordinarily made in other merchant ships. Seeming to load the captain, Monsieur Furneau, with being the occasion of it, and that he did it for his private gain, which, however, had not been true. If the fact had been true, the overplus of provisions, if the stores had been more than sufficient belonged to the owners, not to the captain, at the end of the voyage, there being also a steward on board to take the account. In making this complaint, they seemed to direct their speech to the merchants as well as to the captain, as if they had been concerned in the ship, or as if desiring them to intercede for them with the captain, that they might have redress and a better allowance. The captain was highly provoked at this rudeness, as indeed he had reason. It being a double affront to him, as it was done in the view of the merchants, who were come on board to him, to do him an honor at parting. However, he restrained his passion, and gave them not the least angry word, only that if they were aggrieved, they had no more to do but to let him have know of it, that if they were ill-used, it was not by his order that he would inquire into it, and if anything was amiss, it should be rectified with which the seamen withdrew, seemingly well satisfied with his answer. About five the same evening, they unmoored the ship and hove short upon their best bower anchor, awaiting the land breeze, as is usual on that coast, to carry them out to sea. But instead of that, it fell stark calm, and the captain, fearing the ship would fall foul of her own anchor, ordered the mizzen topsail to be furled. Peterson, one of the malcontent seamen, being the nearest man at hand, seemed to go about it, but moved so carelessly and heavily that it appeared plainly he did not care whether it was done or no, and particularly as if he had a mind the captain should see it and take notice of it, which the captain did, for perceiving how awkwardly he went about it, he spoke a little tartly to him, and asked him what was the reason he did not stir a little and furl the sail peterson as if he had waited for the question answered in a surly tone and with a kind of disdain so as we eat so shall we work this he spoke aloud so that he might be sure the captain heard him and the rest of the men also and it was evident that as he spoke in plural numbers we so he spoke their minds as well as his own and words which they all agreed to before the captain however though he heard plain enough what he said took not the least notice of it or gave him the least reason to believe he had heard him being not willing to begin a quarrel with the men and knowing that if he took any notice at all of it he must resent it and punish it too soon after this the calm went off and the land breeze sprang up and they immediately weighed and stood out to sea but the captain having had these two bustles with his men just at their putting to sea was very uneasy in his mind as indeed he had reason to be. And the same evening, soon after they were under sail, the mate being walking on the quarter-deck, he went, and taking two or three turns with him, told him how he had been used by the men, particularly how they affronted him before the merchants, and what an answer Peterson had given him on the quarter-deck, when he ordered him to furl the mizzen topsail. The mate was as surprised at these things as the captain, and after some other discourse about it, in which it was their unhappiness not to be so private as they ought to have been in a case of such importance. The captain told him he thought it was absolutely necessary to have a quantity of small arms brought immediately into the great cabin, not only to defend themselves if there should be occasion, but also that he might be in a posture to correct those fellows for their insolence, especially should he meet with any more of it the mate agreed that it was necessary to be done and had they said no more or said this more privately all had been well and the wicked design had been much more difficult if not the execution of it effectually prevented but two mistakes in this part was the ruin of them all first that the captain spoke it without due caution so that winter and peterson the two principal malcontents who were expressly mentioned by the captain to be corrected, overheard it and knew by that means what they had to expect if they did not immediately bestir themselves to prevent it. The other mistake was that when the captain and mate agreed that it was necessary to have arms got ready and brought into the great cabin, the captain unhappily bid him go immediately to Gal, the second mate and gunner, and give him orders to get the arms cleared and loaded for him, and to bring them up to the great cabin, which was in short to tell the conspirators that the captain was preparing to be too strong for them, if they did not fall to work with him immediately. Winter and Peterson went immediately forward, where they knew the rest of the mutineers were, and to whom they communicated what they had heard telling them that it was time to provide for their own safety, for otherwise their destruction was resolved on, and the captain would soon be in such a posture that there would be no muddling with him. While they were thus consulting, as they said, only for their own safety, Gow and Williams came into them, with some others to the number of eight, and no sooner were they joined by these two, but they fell downright to the point which Gow had so long formed in his own mind, viz., to seize upon the captain and mate, and all those that they could not bring to join with them. In short, to throw them into the sea and to go upon the account. All those who are acquainted with the sea language know the meaning of that expression, and that it is, in few words, to run away with the ship and turn pirates. Villainous designs are soonest concluded, as they had but little time to consult upon what measures they should take so very little consultation served for what was before them and they came to this short but hellish resolution viz that they would immediately that very night murder the captain and such others as they named and afterwards proceed with the ship as they should see cause and here it is to be observed that though winter and peterson were in the first proposal namely to prevent their being brought to correction by the captain yet gow and williams were the principal advisers in the bloody part which, however, the rest came into soon, for, as I said before, as they had but little time to resolve in, so they had but very little debate about it, but what was first proposed was forthwith engaged in and consented to. It must not be omitted that Gow had always had the wicked game of pirating in his head, and that he had attempted it, or rather tried to attempt it before, but was not able to bring it to pass, so he and Williams had also several times, even in this very voyage, dropped some hints of this vile design, as they thought there was room for it, and touched two or three times at what a noble opportunity they had of enriching themselves, and making their fortunes, as they wickedly called it. This was when they had the four chests of money on board, and Williams made it a kind of jest in his discourse how easily they might carry it off, ship and all. But as they did not find themselves seconded, or that any of the men showed themselves in favor of such a thing, but rather spoke of it with abhorrence, they passed it over as a kind of discourse that had nothing at all in it, except that one of the men, viz. the surgeon, once took them up short for so much as mentioning such a thing, told them the thought was criminal, and it ought not to be spoken of among them, which reproof was supposed cost him his life afterwards." as gow and his comrade had thus started the thing at a distance before though it was then without success yet they had the less to do now when other discontents had raised a secret fire in the breasts of the men for now being as it were mad and desperate with apprehensions of their being severely punished by the captain they wanted no persuasions to come into the most wicked undertaking that the devil or any of his angels could propose to them Nor do we find that upon any of their examinations they pretended to have made any scruples or objections to the cruelty of the bloody attempt that was to be made, but came to it at once, and resolved to put it in execution immediately, that is to say, the very same evening. It was the captain's constant custom to call all the ship's company into the great cabin every night at eight o'clock to prayers, and then the watch being set, one went upon deck and the other turned in— or as the seamen phrase it went to their hammocks to sleep and here they concerted their devilish plot it was the turn of five of the conspirators to go to sleep and of these gow and williams were two the three who were to be upon the deck were winter Rowlandson, and melvin a scotchman the persons they immediately designed for destruction were four viz the captain the mate the supercargo and the surgeon whereof all but the captain were gone to sleep the captain himself being upon the quarter-deck between nine and ten at night all being quiet and secure and the poor gentlemen that were to be murdered fast asleep the villains that were below gave the watchword which was who fires next at which they all got out of their hammocks with as little noise as they could and going in the dark to the hammocks of the chief mate Supercargo and surgeon, they cut all their throats. The surgeon's throat was cut so effectually that he could struggle very little with them, but leaping out of his hammock ran up to get upon the deck, holding his hand upon his throat. But he stumbled at the tiller, and falling down, had no breath, and consequently no strength to raise himself, but died where he lay. The mate, whose throat was cut, but not his windpipe, struggled so vigorously with the villain who attacked him, that he got away from him and into the hold, and the supercargo, in the same condition, got forwards between decks under some deals, and both of them begged with the most moving cries and entreaties for their lives. And when nothing could prevail, they begged with the same earnestness for but a few moments to pray to God and recommend their souls to mercy, but alike in vain, for the wretched murderers, HEATED WITH BLOOD WERE PAST PITY, AND NOT BEING ABLE TO COME AT THEM WITH THEIR KNIVES, WITH WHICH THEY HAD BEGUN THE EXECUTION, THEY SHOT THEM WITH THEIR PISTOLS, FIRING SEVERAL TIMES UPON EACH OF THEM UNTIL THEY FOUND THEY WERE QUITE DEAD. AS ALL THIS, EVEN BEFORE THE FIRING, COULD NOT BE DONE WITHOUT SOME NOISE, THE CAPTAIN, WHO WAS WALKING ALONE UPON THE QUARTER DECK, CALLED OUT AND ASKED WHAT WAS THE MATTER. The boatswain who sat on the after bits and was not of the party answered he could not tell, but he was afraid there was somebody overboard, upon which the captain stepped towards the ship's side to look over. Then Winter, Rowlandson, and Melvin, coming that moment behind him, laid hands on him, and lifting him up, attempted to throw him overboard into the sea. But he, being a nimble, strong man, got hold of the shrouds and struggled so hard with them that they could not break his hold turning his head to look behind him to see who he had to deal with one of them cut his throat with a broad dutch knife but neither was that wound mortal for the captain still struggled with them and seeing he should undoubtedly be murdered he constantly cried up to god for mercy for he found there was none to be expected from them during this struggle another of the murderers stabbed him with a knife in the back and that was such a force that the villain could not draw the knife out again to repeat his blow which he would otherwise have done at this moment gal came up from the butchery he had been at between decks and seeing the captain still alive he went close up to him and shot him as he confessed with a brace of bullets what part he shot him in could not be known though they said he had shot him in the head however he had yet life enough though they threw him overboard to take hold of a rope and would still have saved himself but they cut that rope and then he fell into the sea and was seen no more thus they finished the tragedy having murdered four of the principal men in command in the ship so that there was nobody now to oppose them for gow being second mate and gunner the command fell to him of course and the rest of the men having no arms ready not knowing how to get at any were in utmost consternation expecting they would go on with the work and cut their throats in this fright every one shifted for himself as for those who were upon deck Some got up in the round tops, others got into the ship's head, resolving to throw themselves into the sea rather than be mangled with knives and murdered as the captain and mate, etc., had been. Those who were below, not knowing what to do, or whose turn it should be next, lay still in their hammocks, expecting death every moment, and not daring to stir lest the villains should think they did it in order to make resistance which, however, they were in no way capable of doing, having no concert with one another, not knowing anything in particular of one another, as who was alive or who was dead. Had the captain, who was himself a bold and stout man, been in his great cabin with three or four men with him, and his firearms, as he intended to have had, those eight fellows had never been able to have done their work. But every man was taken unprovided, and in the utmost surprise so that the murderers met with no resistance, and as for those what were left, they were less able to make resistance than the other, so that, as has been said, they were in the utmost terror and amazement, expecting every minute to be murdered as the rest had been. But the villains had done, the persons who had any command were dispatched, so they cooled a little as to blood the first thing they did afterwards was to call up all the eight upon the quarter-deck, where they congratulated one another and shook hands together, engaging to proceed by joint consent in their resolved design, that is, of turning pirates, in order to which they unanimously chose Gow to command the ship, promising all subjection and obedience to his orders, so that we must now call him Captain Gow, and he, by the same consent of the rest, Named Williams his lieutenant; other officers they appointed afterwards. The first orders they issued was to let all the rest of the men know that if they continued quiet and offered not to meddle with any of their affairs, they should receive no hurt, but chiefly forbade any man to set a foot abaft the main mast, except they were called to the helm, upon pain of being immediately cut to pieces keeping for that purpose one man at the steerage door and one upon the quarter-deck with drawn cutlasses in their hands. But there was no need for it, for the men were so terrified with the bloody doings they had seen that they never offered to come in sight until they were called. Their next work was to throw overboard the three dead bodies of the mate, the surgeon, and the supercargo, which they said lay in their way. That was soon done, their pockets being first searched and rifled, From thence they went to work with the great cabin and with all the lockers, chests, boxes, and trunks. These they broke open and rifled, that is, such of them as belonged to the murdered persons, and whatever they found there they shared among themselves. When they had done this, they called for liquor, and sat down to drinking until morning, leaving the men, as above, to keep guard, and particularly to guard the arms, but relieved them from time to time as they saw occasion." By this time they had drawn in four more of the men to approve of what they had done, and promised to join with them, so that now there were twelve in number, and being but twenty-four at first, whereof four were murdered, they had but eight men to be apprehensive of, and those they could easily look after. So the next day they sent for them all to appear before their new captain, where they were told by Gao what his resolution was, viz., to go a-cruising, or to go upon the account." if they were willing to join with them and go into their measures they should be well used and there should be no distinction among them but they should all fare alike he said that they had been forced to do what they had done by the barbarous usage of furinot but that there was now no looking back and therefore as they had not been concerned in what was past, they had nothing to do but to act in concert do their duty as sailors and obey orders for the good of the ship and no harm should come to any of them as they all looked like condemned prisoners brought up to the bar to receive sentence of death so they all answered by a profound silence which gow took as they meant it viz as a consent because they durst not refuse so they were then permitted to go up and down everywhere as they used to do though such of them as sometimes afterwards showed any reluctance to act as principals were never trusted always suspected and very often severely beaten some of them were in many ways inhumanly treated and that particularly by williams the lieutenant who was in his nature a merciless cruel and inexorable wretch as we shall have occasion to take notice of again in its place they were now in a new circumstance of life and acting upon a different stage of business though upon the same stage as to the element the water before they were a merchant ship laden upon a good account with merchants goods from the coast of barbary and bound to the coast of italy but they were now a crew of pirates or as they call them in the levant corsairs bound nowhere but to look out for purchase and spoil wherever they could find it in pursuit of this wicked trade they first changed the name of the ship which was before called the george galley and which they called now the revenge a name indeed suitable to the bloody steps they had taken. In the next place, they made the best of the ship's forces. The ship had but twelve guns mounted when they came out of Holland, but as they had six more good guns in the hold, with cartridges and everything proper for service, which they had in store through being freighted for the Dutch merchants, and the Algerians being at war with the Dutch, they supposed they might want them for defense. Now they took care to mount them for a much worse design, so that now they had eighteen guns, though too many for the number of hands they had on board. In the third place, instead of pursuing their voyage to Genoa with the ship's cargo, they took a clear contrary course, and resolved to station themselves upon the coasts of Spain and Portugal, and to cruise upon all nations, but what they chiefly aimed at was a ship with wine, if possible, for that they wanted extremely The first prize they took was an English sloop belonging to Poole, Thomas Wise, commander, bound from Newfoundland with fish for Cadiz. This was a prize of no value to them, so they took out the master, Mr. Wise, and his men, who were but five in number, with their anchors, cables, and sails, and what else they found worth taking, and sunk the vessel. The next prize they took was a Scotch vessel bound from Glasgow, with herrings and salmon from thence to Genoa. And commanded by one mr john somerville of port patrick this vessel was likewise of little value to them except that they took as they had done from the other their arms ammunition clothes provisions sails anchors cables etc and everything of value and sunk her too as they had done the sloop the reason they gave for sinking these two vessels was to prevent their being discovered for as they were now cruising on the coast of portugal had they let their ships have gone with several of their men on board, they would presently have stood in for shore, and have given the alarm. And the men of war, of which there were several as well Dutch as English in the river of Lisbon, would immediately have put out to sea in quest of them, and they were very unwilling to leave the coast of Portugal, until they had got a ship with wine, which they very much wanted." After this they cruised eight or ten days without seeing so much as one vessel upon the seas, and were just resolving to stand more to the coast of Galicia when they descried a sail to the southward, being a ship about as big as their own, though they could not perceive what force she had. However, they gave chase, and the vessel, perceiving it, crowded from them with all the sail they could make, hoisting up French colors, and standing away to the southward, they continued the chase three days and nights, and though they did not gain much upon her, the Frenchmen sailing very well, yet they kept her in sight all the while, and for the most part within gunshot, but the third night, the weather proving a little hazy, the Frenchmen changed her course in the night, and so got clear of them, and good reason they had to bless themselves in the escape they had made if they had but known what a dreadful crew of rogues they had fallen among if they had been taken. They were now gotten a long way to the southward and being greatly disappointed, and in want of water as well as wine, they resolved to stand away for the Madeiras, which they knew were not far off, so they accordingly made the island in two days more, and keeping a large offing, they cruised for three or four days more, expecting to meet with some Portuguese vessel going in or coming out, but it was in vain, for nothing stirred. So, tired with waiting, they stood in for the road, and came to anchor, though at a great distance. Then they sent their boat towards the shore with seven men, all well armed, to see whether it might not be practicable to board one of the ships in the road, and, cutting her away from her anchors, bring her off or if they found that could not be done then their orders were to intercept some of the boats belonging to the place which carry wines on board the ships in the road or from one place to another on the coast but they came back again disappointed in both everybody being alarmed and aware of them knowing by their posture what they were having thus spent several days to no purpose and finding themselves discovered at last being apparently under a necessity to make an attempt somewhere they stood away for porto santo the most northerly of the islands about ten leagues to the windward of madeiras and belonging also to the portuguese Here putting up British colors, they sent their boat ashore with Captain Somerville's bill of health, and a present to the governor of three barrels of salmon, and six barrels of herrings, and a very civil message, desiring leave to water, and to buy some refreshments, pretending to be bound to... The governor very courteously granted their desire, but with more courtesy than discretion went off himself, with about nine or ten of his principal people, to pay the English captain a visit, little thinking what kind of a captain it was they were going to compliment and what price it might have cost them however gal handsomely dressed received them with some ceremony and entertained them tolerably well for a while but the governor having been kept as long by civility as they could and the refreshments from the shore not appearing he was forced to unmask and when the governor and his company rose up to take their leave To their great surprise, they were suddenly surrounded with a gang of fellows with muskets, and an officer at the head of them. These told them, in so many words, they were the captain's prisoners, and must not think of going on shore any more until the water and provisions which were promised should come on board. It is impossible to conceive the consternation and surprise the Portuguese gentry were in, nor is it very decently to be expressed. The poor governor was so much more than half dead with fright that he really befouled himself in a piteous manner, and the rest were in not much better condition. They trembled, cried, begged, crossed themselves, and said their prayers as men going to execution. But it was all one. They were told flatly that the captain was not to be trifled with, that the ship was in want of provisions, and they would have them, or they should carry them all away." they were however well enough treated except for the restraint of their persons and were often asked to refresh themselves but they would neither eat nor drink any more all the while they stayed on board which was until the next day in the evening when to their great satisfaction they saw a great boat come off from the fort and which came directly on board with seven butts of water a cow and a calf and a good number of fowls when the boat came alongside and delivered the stores captain gow complimented the governor and his gentlemen and discharged them to their great joy and besides that gave them in return for their provisions two serons of beeswax and fired them three guns at their going away it is to be supposed they would have a care how they went on board any ship again in compliment to their captain unless they were very sure who they were having had no better success in this out-of-the-way run to the madeiras they resolved to make the best of their way back again to the coast of Spain and Portugal. They accordingly left Porto Santo, died next morning with a fair wind, standing directly for Cape St. Vincent, or the southward Cape. They had not been upon the coast of Spain above two or three days before they met with a New England ship, one cross-commander laden with slaves and bound for Lisbon, being to load there with wine for London. This was also a prize of no value to them, and they began to be very much discouraged with their bad fortune. However, they took out Captain Cross and his men, which were seven or eight in number, with most of the provisions and some of the sails, and gave the ship to Captain Wise, the poor man whom they took at first in a sloop from Newfoundland, and in order to pay Wise and his men for what they took from them, and make them satisfaction, as they called it, they gave to Captain Wise and his mate, twenty-four sarans of wax, and to his men, who were four in number, two sarans of wax each. Thus they pretended honesty, and to make reparation of damages by giving them the goods which they had robbed the Dutch merchants of, whose supercargo they had murdered. The day before the division of the spoil, they saw a large ship to windward, which at first put them into some surprise, for she came bearing down directly upon them and they thought she had been a Portuguese man-of-war. But they found soon after that it was a merchant ship, had French colors, and bound home, as they supposed from the West Indies. And so it was, for they afterwards learned that she was laden at Martinico and bound for Rochelle. The Frenchmen, not fearing them, came on large to the wind, being a ship of much greater force than Gow's ship, carrying thirty-two guns and eighty men, besides a great many passengers. However, Gow at first made as if he would lie by for them, but seeing plainly what a ship it was, and that they should have their hands full of her, he began to consider, and calling his men together upon the deck, told them what was in his mind, viz. that the Frenchman was apparently superior in force in every way, that they were but ill-manned, and had a great many prisoners on board, and that some of their own people were not very well to be trusted that six of their best hands were on board the prize, and that all they had left were not sufficient to ply their guns and stand by the sails, and that therefore as they were under no necessity to engage, so he thought it would be next to madness to think of it. The generality of the men were of Gow's mind, and agreed to decline the fight, but Williams, his lieutenant, strenuously opposed it. And being not to be appeased by all that Gow could say to him, or any one else, flew out into a rage at Gow, upbraiding him with being a coward and not fit to command a ship of force. The truth is, Gow's reasoning was good, and the thing was just, considering their own condition. But Williams was a fellow incapable of any solid thinking, had a kind of savage, brutal courage, but nothing of true bravery in him, and this made him the most desperate and outrageous villain in the world." and the most cruel and inhumane to those whose disaster it was to fall into his hands, as had frequently appeared in his usage of the prisoners under his power in this very voyage. Gow was a man of temper, and notwithstanding all the ill language Williams gave him, said little or nothing but by way of argument against attacking the French ship, which would certainly have been too strong for them, but this provoked Williams the more, and he grew so extraordinary in height that he demanded boldly of Gow to give his orders for fighting, which Gow declining still Williams presented his pistol at him and snapped it, but it did not go off, which enraged him the more Winter and Peterson standing nearest to Williams and seeing him so furious, flew at him immediately, and each of them fired a pistol at him. One shot him through the arm and the other into his belly, at which he fell, and the men about him laid hold of him to throw him overboard, believing he was dead. But as they lifted him up, he started violently out of their hands and leaped directly into the hold, and from thence ran desperately into the powder room with his pistol cocked in his hand, swearing he would blow them all up. He had certainly done it, if they had not seized him just as he had gotten the scuttle open." And was that moment going to put his hellish resolution into practice having thus secured the distracted raving creature they carried him forward to the place which they had made on purpose between decks to secure their prisoners and put him amongst them having first loaded him with irons and particularly handcuffed him with his hands behind him to the great satisfaction of the other prisoners who knowing what a butcherly furious fellow he was were terrified to the last degree to see him coming in among them until they beheld the condition he came in he was indeed the terror of all the prisoners for he usually treated them in a barbarous manner without the least provocation and merely for his humour presenting pistols to their breasts swearing he would shoot them that moment and then would beat them unmercifully and all for his diversion as he called it having thus laid him fast they presently resolved to stand away to the westward by which they quitted the martinico ship who by that time was come nearer to them and farther convinced them they were in no condition to have engaged her for she was a stout ship and full of men all this happened just the day before they shared their last prize among the prisoners in which they put on such a mock face of doing justice to the several captains and mates and other men their prisoners whose ships they had taken away and to whom now they made reparation by giving them what they had taken violently from another so that it was a strange medley of mock justice made up of rapine and generosity blended together two days after this they took a bristol ship bound from newfoundland to a porto with fish they let her cargo alone for they had no occasion for fish but they took out almost all their provisions all the ammunition, arms, etc., and her good sails, also her best cables, and forced two of her men to go away with them, and then got ten of the Frenchmen on board and let her go, but just as they were parting with her, they consulted together what to do with Williams the lieutenant, who was then among the prisoners and in irons, and after a short debate they resolved to put him on board the Bristol man and send him away too which accordingly was done with directions to the master to deliver him on board the first English man-of-war they should meet with, in order to get his being hanged for a pirate, as they jeeringly called him, as soon as he came to England, giving the master an account of some of his villainies. The truth is, this Williams was a monster rather than a man, he was the most inhumane, bloody, and desperate creature that the world could produce, and was even too wicked for Gow and all his crew. Though they pirates and murderers, as has been shown, his temper was so savage, so villainous, so merciless, that even the pirates themselves told him it was time he was hanged out of the way. One instance of the barbarity of Williams cannot be omitted, and will be sufficient to justify all that can be said of him." when gow gave it as a reason against engaging with the martinico ship that he had a great many prisoners on board and some of their own men that they could not depend on williams proposed to have them all called up one by one and to cut their throats and throw them overboard a proposal so horrid that the worst of the crew shook their heads at it gow answered him very handsomely that there had been too much blood spilled already Yet the refusing this heightened the quarrel, and was the chief occasion of his offering to Pistol himself, after which his behavior was such as made all the ship's crew resolve to be rid of him, and it was thought if they had not had an opportunity to send him away as they did by the Bristol ship, they would have been obliged to have hanged him themselves. This cruel and butchery temper of William's being carried to such a height, and so near to the ruin of them all, shocked some of them and as they acknowledged, gave some check in the heat of their wicked progress, and had they had an opportunity to have gone on shore at that time, without falling into the hands of justice, it is believed the greatest part of them would have abandoned the ship, and perhaps the very trade of a pirate too. But they had dipped their hands in blood, and heaven had no doubt determined to bring them, that is, the chief of them, to the gallows for it, as indeed they all deserved, So they went on. When they put Williams on board the Bristol man, and he was told what directions they gave with him, he began to relent, and made all the intercession he could to Captain Gow for pardon, or at least not to be put on board the ship, knowing that if he was carried to Lisbon, he should meet with his due from the Portuguese, if not from the English, for it seems he had been concerned in some villainies among the Portuguese before he came on board the George galley. What they were he did not confess, nor indeed did his own ship's crew trouble themselves to examine him about it. He had been wicked enough among them, and it was sufficient to make them use him as they did. It was more to be wondered, indeed, that they did not cut him to pieces upon the spot and throw him into the sea, half on one side of the ship and half on the other, for there was scarce a man in the ship, but on one occasion or other had some apprehensions of him and might be said to go in danger of his life from him. But they chose to shift their hands of him this bloodless way, so they double-fettered him and brought him up. When they brought him among the men, he begged they would throw him into the sea and drown him, then entreated for his life with a meanness which made them despise him, and with tears, so that one time they began to relent. But then the devilish temper of the fellow overruled it again, so at last they resolved to let him go, and did accordingly put him on board, and gave him many a hearty curse at parting, wishing him a good voyage to the gallows, which was made good afterwards, though in such company as they little thought of at that time. The Bristol captain was very just to him, for according to their orders, as soon as they came to Lisbon, they put him on board the Argyle, one of his majesty's ships, Captain Bowles' commander, then lying in the tagus and bound home for england who accordingly brought him home though as it happened heaven brought the captain and the rest of the crew so quickly to an end of their villainies that they all came home time enough to be hanged with their lieutenant but to return to gow and his crew having thus dismissed the bristol man and cleared his hands of most of his prisoners with the same wicked generosity he gave the bristol captain thirteen serons of beeswax as a gratuity for his trouble and charge with the prisoners and in recompense as he called it for the goods he had taken from him and so they parted this was the last prize they took not only on the coast of portugal but anywhere else for to give him his due, was a fellow of council, and had a great presence of mind in cases of exigence, considered that as soon as the Bristol ship came into the river of Lisbon, they would certainly give an account of them, as well of their strength, and of their station in which they cruised, and that consequently the English men of war, of which there are generally some in that river, would immediately come abroad to look for them." So he began to reason with his officers that the coast of Portugal would be no proper place at all for them, unless they resolved to fall into the hands of the said men of war, and they ought to consider immediately what to do. In these debates, some advised one thing, some another, as is usual in like cases. Some were for going to the coast of Guinea, where, as they said, was purchase. The word is here used in its original sense indicating something acquired by seeking or hunting, poor chasseur, enough and very rich ships to be taken. Others were going to the West Indies and to cruise among the islands and take up their station at Tobago. Others, and not those of the most ignorant, proposed standing in to the Bay of Mexico and joining in with some of a new sort of pirates at St. Yago de la Cuba, who were all Spaniards and called themselves Guarda del Costa, that is, guard ships for the coast, though under that pretense they make prize of ships of all nations, and sometimes even of their own countrymen too, but especially of the English. But when this was proposed, it was answered they durst not trust the Spaniards. Others said they should go first to the islands of New Providence, Bahama Islands, or to the mouth of the Gulf of Florida, and then cruising on the coast of North America, and making their retreat at New Providence, cruise from the gulf of florida north upon the coast of carolina and as high as the capes of virginia but nothing could be resolved on until at last gow let them into the secret of a project which as he told them he had long had in his thoughts and this was to go away to the north of scotland near the coast of which as he said he was born and bred and where he said if they met with no purchase upon the sea he could tell them how they should enrich themselves by going on shore to bring them to concur with this design he represented the danger they were in where they were the want they were in of fresh water and of several kinds of provisions but above all the necessity they were in of careening and cleaning their ship that it was too long a run for them to go to southward and that they had not provisions to serve them till they could reach to any place proper for that purpose, and might be driven to the utmost distress if they should be put by from watering, either by weather or enemies. End of chapter 40 Recording by Lauren Randall